Hello and welcome back to the Agents of Change and Environmental Justice podcast, a partnership between Environmental Health News and Columbia University Mailman School of Public Health. I'm Brian Binkowski, Senior Editor at Environmental Health News and the editor of Agents of Change. Of course, we are here every two weeks, but I wanted to briefly tell you all about another podcast we've been tuning into. What if we could change the world one relationship at a time? Don't miss the second season of Force Multiplier, the award-winning podcast from iHeartRadio and Salesforce.org about tackling some of today's biggest challenges like climate change, education access, and global health. Listen in as host Baron Tom Thurston connects with impactful organizations like the Trevor Project, Doctors Without Borders, and the University of Kentucky, plus inspiring individuals like Juan Acosta and Amy Allison to discuss ways to maximize our impact. Listen to Force Multiplier on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. Today's guest on our show, hanging out, is Dr. Jennifer D. Roberts, a tenured associate professor of kinesiology at the University of Maryland School of Public Health in College Park. She is also the director of the Public Health Outcomes and Effects of the Built Environment Laboratory. Robert talks about nature as medicine for our physical and mental health, inequity in green space access, and how she approaches mentorship. Enjoy. All right. I am super excited to be joined by Dr. Jennifer Roberts. Jennifer, how are you doing today? I am great, Brian. How are you? I'm doing wonderful. We are so happy to have you. We are so excited to have you here today. And I'd like to start with folks uh, way at the beginning. And you are from Buffalo, New York. You know, I just talked to one of our fellows who is from Buffalo, and she had such a beautiful poetic way of describing one of my favorite Rust Belt cities. So tell me about your experience growing up there and if at all, how it shaped you as a person and the researcher that you are today. Sure. Um, So yes, I was born and raised in Buffalo, New York. And when I was a kid, um, I was a kid in the seventies and eighties and (laughs) nineties. The city had a much larger population, almost double um, than what it is today. And um, the city was quite segregated in terms of like black, white neighborhoods. It still is today. Um, And I think for me, the earliest time when I was growing up, I grew up on the east side, which was predominantly African-American. And then by the time I was in middle school, my family moved little further up north near the University of Buffalo and that neighborhood was a little bit more integrated racially which I think had a lot to do with being near the campus Um, but along with my neighborhoods I attended private schools pretty much my entire life and so I was often that only black child or maybe one of few Um, And so that's kind of imprinted my early notions and understandings regarding inequity um, inequity and opportunity because it's like in my neighborhood there was a lot of black kids who looked like me who were going to different schools and those schools were under-resourced and they just didn't have the same opportunities and I could see that really early on as a child and I think I early, very early on saw like the difference between a black buffalo and a white buffalo and that really just, you know, that shaped my, my experiences as a black child and subsequently as a woman and I think that's what, um definitely informs my research and work today. So to skip forward a little bit, you went to Brown University for undergrad, Emory University for your master's, and then earned your doctor of public health degree from Johns Hopkins University, Bloomberg School of Public Health. I'll put the whole title in there. So (laughs) where along the way did you decide that public health research was what you wanted to do? And what advice would you have for people who are still on that journey? 
I often ask this question, and I actually have given some talks to undergrads and graduate students, because my professional as well as my academic uh, trajectory was not really that linear. I mean, I knew since, I would say, before high school, um, and much earlier, actually, probably elementary school, that I wanted to do something with health and well-being. And so I just kind of figured, oh, that means you want to be a physician. So when I went to Brown, I was pre-med, and I continued along that path, even when I started my um, MPH program at Emory University. But during my very first semester at Emory, I had to take the general introduction to environmental health class, which all MPH students have to take. And there was a lecture by Dr. Howard Frumkin. We're still friends till to this day. But I immediately fell in love with environmental health and this whole ideal of well, public health and specifically environmental health. And then that completely changed my trajectory, my pathway away from medicine to public health. So I guess if I was going to give some advice to folks, I would say, like, listen to your gut um, and try to follow your heart with what gives you passion, like what helps you say, I would still do this if I wasn't getting paid. That's also a good way to figure out if you like it. And then also, like, don't compare your journey to others. So, like, for example... I didn't have like maybe the traditional trajectory into academia. I was a consultant for about six years. And then I said, oh, okay, I think I want to go into the academy. Um, and so it's okay if you take pit stops along the way and do other things. Um, and you don't have to have like the same kind of um, pathway as other folks. I really like that advice, especially the idea of of taking taking your time figuring out i mean to figure out at 18 when i when i went to to my university i was 18 years old and everybody was going into business so i went into business and then two years in i'm wearing grateful dead shirts and have long hair and i'm realizing i should not be in the business college I am, this <laughs> yeah. is this is not me this is not who i am and right. uh, to decide that at 18 it's just a really I, at least for at least for me and and i think men mature a little a little more slowly but it was an early time to decide what i wanted to do with my life so i really like that advice yeah and i like how even how it's changing like you don't have to just choose one thing anymore like before of our parents generation it was like okay this is one job and i'm going to stick with it for like 60 years but now you could have like multiple careers. I went to school with someone. He went to law school, he practiced, and then he was like, "Okay, I want to open like a pup, a cupcake store." Like you can just do whatever you want, you know. Well, not whatever you want, but you know, don't try to like you know box yourself into something if you're kind of being drawn to something else that you find interesting. Yes, totally. So I want to hear about the work you are doing and what you would be doing even if you weren't getting paid for it. But first. I've been asking everybody, what is a defining moment that shaped your identity? That's a really good question. You know, when I think about it, I don't think there was one single moment. Um, I think a defining period for me that shaped my identity, um, specifically as a black woman, was when I was a student at, at Brown University. And so up until this point, before my freshman year, I attended so many predominantly, and I would even say centrally white schools from kindergarten through high school. And so this was my first time to be surrounded by so many black scholars. And I kind of just found my tribe in terms of the folks who were just sort of like me, but not always like me. Um, and even though Brown is a predominantly white institution, there was so much 
pro-black energy from students and faculty. And I think having that positive energy throughout my four years there, it kind of like reinforced the pride I had already as, as a black individual, but also it really opened the doors to really um, be drawn and kind of surround myself by other cultures and other races and ethnicities. And I just think it was just, it built pride and happiness. And I, I think that was where, that was a defining period of my life, I guess, that shaped my identity. That's excellent. Yeah. I, I think what I really like what you said was seeing people that were like you and also maybe not like you, maybe black scholars that are different in their own way. Uh, I think that's important. This, this diversity within diversity and uh, that, and it's something, as, you know, as a white man that I you didn't, you know, you don't really think about that because I was always told you can be whatever you want. And you see people in all these professions. Um, so that perspective is is great. And I hope that's changing today. Do you do you see that changing a little bit now that you are in institutions and maybe mentoring people like your younger self? I do, but I feel like to some degree it's changing at a snail's pace. Um I, I still find students who, particularly my undergrad students, who seem to be kind of mirror images of me in terms of like, particularly my students of color, um, who are mirror images of me of how I was at that 18 year old. And almost, when I say a mirror image, I mean kind of a little hesitant, a little unsure, do I fit in? And I wish the students kind of felt a little bit more um, like, of course I belong here. Like, of course I fit in. And so I still feel a little bit of that hesitancy. Um, and so, but I do see, you know, that there's many other, like there's community groups, there's, you know, the Black Student Union, and a lot of the students are still, you know, they feel comfortable, but I, I, I wish there had been a little bit more um, and faster advancement. But at least it's going in the right direction. Of course, yeah. And I mean, part of, obviously, part of the Agents of Change program is to, identify these folks and amplify them and let others know that there are all kinds of people researching. And as a journalist, I, I've seen for years the same five climate scientists quoted in every New York Times story. And then I start working with Aids to Change and, and through other avenues, it's like, oh, there's so many people working on these issues that, uh, that deserve to not only be in the media, but deserve to have their own words on the page and so on and so forth. So, yeah. you know, Hopefully we're all moving in that direction. So you now focus on the impact of the built social and natural environments on the public health of marginalized communities. Can you walk us through just what this means and some examples of how these different environments create health inequities for certain communities? Sure, sure. So, so again, my focus is on the impact of built environments. So, so rather... I can more easily say our man-made environments like our houses, our neighborhoods, or, or even our transportation systems. And how that environment is related also to our social and our natural environments. And specifically, a lot of the inequities, whether they're the institutional or the structural inequities of all of these environments, how all of that put together impacts public health outcomes, specifically um, health outcomes or health behaviors. And so a lot of my research really examines the dynamic relationship of all of these with kind of an active living lens to it or specifically physical activity. But that could be like for play or recreation or even for the purpose of transit. So do we walk to our schools? Do we walk to work? Um, and so I can give you an example. 
often, or I can even say earlier on when I was earlier in my kind of research of this particular scholarship, um, as an active living researcher, um, I focused a lot on the built environment. And so it was very much focused on, okay, are there sidewalks? What's the intersection density? You know, is there a transit system that people can, you know, get to and from places? Um, and so even despite my lived experience as a black woman, I kind of, I won't say ignored, but almost forgot about the impact of the social environment. And so I often now reference, I'll say, well, Trayvon Martin, he was engaged in active transportation, trying to walk from his home to the store. Or Ahmaud Arbery, he was engaged in recreational activity, um, going for a jog. And because of their social political environment, it um, they were unable to complete the activity. Um, and it was a fatal reason for why they were unable to complete the activity. And so... I often talk about, you know, it's not just about the built environment because as active living researchers, we really want to make sure the built environment is perfect, which it should be. Well, not perfect, but it should be active, a promoting of activities. But we also have to think about, well, are some of these environments not welcoming for others or do some of these environments cause a different level of threat? And so a lot of my research will focus on these kind of health inequities related to environments and I often talk about issues with walking while black or running while black or even for a lot of communities of, of color um, and then also too it's not even just the relationship built in social environment but the natural environment so you know how some natural environments are not as welcoming for communities of color or how some communities of color don't even feel comfortable to go in natural environments so kind of like all that together put together like in a salad is <laughs> kind of like all the little things that I, um, big things that I, I research. I thought of you uh, the other day. So I was researching uh, a little bit about your work for this call and I was listening to a different podcast and they were talking about um, activity among children, um, just, just being physically active basically. And it was, he, the researcher was talking about how from such a young age now, we're either kind of, we consider ourselves an athlete or a not athlete. And the yeah. people who don't think they're an athlete now, there's a lot of things to do. They can watch TV. They can, um, you know, play video games. They can sit on their phone. Where back in the day, even if you were a quote unquote non-athlete, you still rode your bike and, and ran around with your friends because there was nothing else to do. Mm -hmm. So I, I'm just wondering, you said the word uh, play in there. And I'm wondering if you could talk about that a little bit, how we don't all have to be cycling 100 miles or running marathons to be active and, and healthy and, and just kind of playing or just being outside and moving our bodies is a good thing, even if we're quote unquote, not an athlete. Right, right. I think that's one of the things that's kind of been a barrier in how we self-identify ourselves very much early on with regard to activity. And a lot of times when I mention active play, I'm thinking about children, but um, adults play too. And when I did some of my earlier studies, I was looking at the physical activity of children. And so I would call it active play because kids don't say, oh, I'm going to go run around the block. You know, they go outside and they're playing and they're climbing trees and they're doing whatever. But adults, you know, we can characterize our physical activity as play as well. You know, we, like you said, we don't have to get on the bike and, you know, cycle 50 miles. 
um, we might just want to, you know, play a game of hide and seek with someone or we want to play um, badminton outside or just, you know, games, just anything that we're not sedentary and that we're moving. Um, and something as simple as just walking is great as well, you know. So I think if we kind of come outside of our heads and say, well, I'm not an athlete or I'm not this, and we just say, well, I just want to go outside and play, then we will start to um, welcome those opportunities of playing. Before you know it, we'll be a little bit more active. And I love thinking about solutions in this space. And I want to talk about Nature Rx. And I read about this in one of your publications about how uh, admiration for nature can save us, you wrote um, with colleagues. So I'm, can you explain what Nature Rx looks like on your campus and in the context of you know, college students specifically, just for an example, how this increased access to nature and green space can affect our physical and mental health in, in very positive ways? Sure. And that quote, yeah, that admiration for nature can save us. That is a quote that um, I borrowed from Alice Walker, who is, you know, an awesome novelist, but she's a naturalist as well. And I just love how she can take words and make the nature seem so majestic and beautiful and welcoming. And so I, I, I just love that quote. But in any case, the Nature RX program it was started a few years ago by myself and another colleague, Dr. Shannon Jetty, who's also here with me at the University of Maryland. And we kind of just stumbled in it at first. You know, we had met Robert Zarr, who is kind of the lead person of Park RX, and that's the whole initiative to um, kind of combat chronic disease with nature through the use of like writing prescriptions. And he initially started doing that with his pediatric patients. And we met him at a luncheon when they were talking about Parax and its partnership with Prince George's County, which is where um, University of Maryland sits. And he came and he said, you know what, Cornell has started this NHRX program. Would you guys be interested in starting something at UMD? And we were like, sure. And it sounded like a really cool ideal. And so we came back that fall and started to ask folks around campus who'd be interested and we realized people all the way from landscape architecture, people from um, our Arboretum office, from the rec, rec center, all over, even we have a historian. They came together and they said they were interested. And so we launched the program and we came up with a mission. And our mission was to say that we wanted to highlight and um, leverage the natural spaces on our campus Arboretum, um, primarily for the purpose of health and well-being, as well as um, environmental stewardship. And there's so much data out there that talks about how beneficial nature is for your physical and your mental health. You know, it can reduce stress. It can improve cognition for adults and kids, help you with your sleep. I mean, it goes on and on. And so we wanted to make sure that we took advantage of this beautiful arboretum in which our campus sits and encourage our students and our faculty and staff to go outside and engage in nature. There's many people on campus who don't know all of the green spaces um, around campus. And so our, the Arboretum offers, you know, tours around campus for people who even been here for years. Um, and then I would say that as the organization evolved um, over the past couple of years, and particularly I would say during the first year of the pandemic, and as I was really seeing things about the inequities with nature, how people didn't have parks to go to, you know, during the high level of quarantine, I really wanted to make sure that 
the aspect of inequity historically and presently was recognized. And so I came back and I said I wanted to add in another whole aim to Nature X or a goal. And that was one to really recognize the Piscataway people. So our campus, you know, lies on the indigenous land that was seized from the Piscataway people. And so I want to make sure that Nature RX not only recognizes these Piscataway elders, but also brings to light, you know, some of the, the, the legacies of violence and the displacement, um, the migration of those ancestors through not only education, but other acts of tribute. And, and then along with Piscataway, I wanted to also make sure that NHRX is part of the, the conversation that um, acknowledges UMD's historic ties to the slave trade and even encourages co conversation on ways that we can atone. So all of that kind of comes under that NHRX umbrella. You know, the recognition that I just spent, spoke about, the, the education. I'll be starting a new class this fall called Black Bodies, Green Spaces from 1619 to today. We'll have a research arm, and then the park, um, excuse me, the prescription arm. So we'll start to have a peer program where we actually can write nature prescriptions, so people can actually get a quote unquote prescription and go outside, you know, and get the fifteen minutes of some nature or however their their prescription will be written. So I need one of those. I need a whole. <laughs> I need a whole script from. <laughs> <laughs> You know, Jennifer, I was talking to a, another a fellow on this podcast recently, and she talked about, um, she was a Hispanic woman and talked about when she got to college, environmentalism and, and kind of nature access in general was framed in like people wearing REI and $400 boots. And, it, you know, just the, the depiction of what it meant to be out in the environment and uh, someone who loved nature was a very specific kind of person and not a person that looked like her. Mm -hmm. um, I'm wondering how... If that aspect of uh, environmentalism and nature access, it, you touch on that in your research, and if so, you know how you deal with that, dismantle those notions of, you know, high dollar entry costs, and you have to look like this in order to enjoy being outside. Yes, I do. I do touch on that, and I, I will be touching on that in the class that I will teach this fall. And a lot of it is kind of. An evolution of the relationship, or in the and the connection of nature with communities of color, um, there may have be, be some historical trauma that is associated with nature. So, for example, a lot of lynchings occurred out in fields and out in nature. So there may be that. There may be other traumas associated. So there may have been some kind of retreats from nature, um, and then this kind of dogma was prevalent like oh people of color don't like nature or they don't go out in nature no there was some stuff that went on um it's not that they don't like it but there may be some hesitancy and so i i do touch upon that in um research and then also the whole idea of how many places were segregated in early parks you know they had a segregated shenandoah had a segregated spot for african-americans um pools beaches were segregated so there's that whole backdrop as well um, and so that is something that, you know, we can't like gloss over and then jump to, why don't we see folks out, you know, who don't look white <laughs> in these spaces? And so it's important to really know the history. Um, and then also presently, when you do go out, I also talk about kind of the microaggressions. So sometimes it's the overwhelming, like, 
or the subtle, not actually not so subtle, but the comments of like, how did you know where this park was? And they'll be like, wait, <laughs> like Rock Creek Park? Like that's like the biggest park. Like those subtle kind of questions. So it still has this kind of like white centrality of like, well, this is nature. Like this is where we go. How did you guys hear about it? So some of those microaggressions, and even to this day, I've had colleagues who come and tell me, you know, since the pandemic, I've been going out in nature more, and, you know, I'll get these looks, or I'll get these comments, or this and that, and so it's that kind of that microaggression, so it's all those things that are still there, that can be barriers for some folks, you know, and I try to tell people, I actually wrote an op-ed um, that's going to be coming out this month or next month. And I forgot the title, <laughs> but it has to do with black bodies and green spaces. And literally, I was talking about the fact that we need to reclaim it. Um, and I just I literally just moved to a new house in November. And I was talking about how much I love walking in the tree canopy. But I know just like maybe five, six miles away in a predominantly African-American neighborhood, it's not the same. And and it shouldn't be that way. And so I talk about the nature gaps but I also talk about how, you know, we we deserve it. When I say we, I mean communities of color, BIPOC, to be able to go to these spaces just as much as anyone. And I also like to say nature doesn't belong to anyone, you know. So it's something that, you know, you should just go and just reclaim that space and be able to enjoy it. So um, so I, I just feel like, you know, all these things have to be discussed when we're talking about equity in nature and, and green space. So. There's a couple other studies you published recently that I want to touch on. But before we move on from this, I want to ask you what nature means to you. I mean, you don't have to give me your secret spots where you like to go and uh, and, and be alone uh, or be judged, apparently, for, for some reason by folks. But what does it mean to you when you when you think about nature? What is what does it mean to you? Um, well, sometimes I do have to admit, I do like going out in nature walks by myself. But then I'll be like, OK, wait a minute. Um, I'm here by myself and you got to have, you got to always have safety in the back of your mind. But in any case, I really like to be by myself in nature because I can really absorb kind of like the peace of it. Um, I have a deep appreciation just for the sounds, just being by a creek and hearing the water. Um, but it gives me, gives me hope. It gives me life when I'm, when I'm out in nature and, and, and I, I really do believe the, you know, that quote that we mentioned earlier, admiration for nature can save us. And sometimes when I go outside, it just kind of re reinvigorates me. And I just love the idea of being out in a, and seeing the creation of nature or creation of things that man did not do, so to speak. You know, it just it's just wonderful. You'll see, wow, where, how did that? Sometimes you'll see like a flower that is growing out of like um, a, a sidewalk. And you'll be like, how did that come out through that crack? You know, like little things like that will amaze me. So, you know, it just, it kind of just reinvigorates me when I go out in nature. Yeah, that's, that's really beautiful to hear. I know during the very early days of the pandemic, when we were all literally just at our houses, you know, locked down, I live in a pretty rural area. Um, so I was really fortunate to have, uh, I, you know, I wasn't in a concrete jungle stuck at my house. <laughs> And uh, I drew a lot of optimism, even though the world was just in such a crazy place at that time, just knowing that the the foxes were still coming to my house every night and the you know, everything, everything outside was still moving at the same pace and was okay. And I, I know personally that made me feel really, it made me feel okay. Yeah, reassuring. Yeah, it definitely is. 
and my uh, my partner, my wife is uh, we have we own a farm and we do seed saving. We focus on seed saving, and um, she has opened my eyes to these little tiny plants and the seeds. And just like you mentioned, you know, the flower growing from concrete, these very tiny beings that are just so beautiful and have no business surviving. And yes, right. and they right. do against all odds, you're able to come up and stand straight through the crack. <laughs> right. That's like the, the Tupac poem, the rose that grew from yes. concrete. I yes. Always think of. Yes. yes, it is. It is. Yes, very much so. So so speaking of um the pandemic, unfortunately here we are a few years later and we're still we're still dealing with it as me and you talk right now. And so you you had some interesting research on COVID nineteen looking at the disproportionate impacts on communities of color. Can you walk us through how decades of disinvestment in housing, transportation, schools, and other resources, a lot of the, the built environment that you mentioned are linked with COVID rates in in these communities? Sure. I think I I often like to reference the phrase, your zip code is a better predictor of your health than your genetic code, because that helps to address health disparities, equities, all that are related to racism within this country. And so I think a way to understand that is to kind of look at all of our determinants. So if we take COVID-19, as an example, when we think about, okay, we're born with a set of individual health determinants that are related to our genetic predisposition, generational influences, so the health, you know, the fetal health that you, you know, when your mom was carrying you and some of the other things that were going on before you even come, they're just set, you know, and they can also influence our health outcomes and our behaviors. So if you grow up in a household where everyone eats, you know, you know, from the garden outside and sits around the table at dinner time, and then maybe goes for a family walk, then you'll have certain behaviors that you carry on, or you have maybe different behaviors. But I like to think about these individual determinants and how they affect our eat, our, what we eat and in our movement. And all of those can have outcomes that can be good or bad. And so when we talk about COVID, we saw that certain health outcomes, pre-existing health outcomes, were putting people at like a higher risk for severe COVID-19. And so we were thinking, okay, some of those were like obesity, diabetes. And when we think about that, we're like, okay, is it all genetic? No, that's not the whole story. There's all of these social determinants of health. So everything from like we mentioned, the built environment, so the type of house and neighborhood we live in, Um, whether or not the neighborhood has public transportation, the food environment. So do you live in a food swamp? Do you live in a food desert? Or do you have grocery stores or farmer's markets to get healthy food? Your educational environment, which is very much linked to the um, the neighborhood environment. So do you have safe, you know, highly resourced schools that are available? The social environment, you know, are you living in a way that, you know, the social and cultural systems in which you navigate at home, at work, at school... You know, are they kind of toxic to you? And so there's other ones, you know, as well. But a lot of these affect our health. But we have to think about all of these environmental silos and then the individual determinants that were within the silo and how they were put into motion by the laws, the the policies, regulations. Most if not all, stemmed from racist and discriminatory ideologies, such as like redlining and other aspects. And so when we look at these determinants, like, or we take one, for example, parks, that's one determinant that would be, quote, in our built environment. 
And we saw that during the pandemic, not everybody had access to parks. Not everyone had access to green space. Even though CDC told us in the summer of 2020, hey, everyone go out to the park. That's the best way to keep safe. But we saw that there were some disparities regarding that. And the parks and the disparity of parks are related to the residential segregation, which is related to redlining. And so it's this kind of ongoing thing. And so you can't just look at one thing and say, oh, that's why they're inactive, or, oh, that's why they eat unhealthy. You know, it's a, it's a constellation of all of these social determinants that really take the forefront over the individual determinants that we are born with. So COVID-19 was one thing in the last two years that I think opened a lot of people's eyes to, to kind of structural, structural racism in a lot of these institutions and policies. And the other one, of course, was Black men dying at the hands of police. Um, mm-hmm. And you started, um, you know, you have an upcoming paper that starts boldly with uh, I can't breathe. And it goes on to list men in recent black men in recent years who have said these words before dying at the hands of police. So I know this is a large paper and covers a lot of ground. And you mentioned Trayvon Martin and Ahmaud Arbery earlier. But can you outline the connection you make between current police brutality and environmental injustice and, and maybe give us some of the solutions or paths forward that you offer in the paper? Yes, definitely. Um, we wanted this paper to be very bold. And actually, we just got the email today that it was accepted. So we're really excited. All right. Yeah, we're really excited that it's going to be coming out um, next month. And I knew even with before the paper was written, I wanted I Can't Breathe to be in the title because I started thinking about that can be interpreted in so many ways. Yes, it can be the I Can't Breathe that Eric Gardner said or George Floyd, but it also can mean I can't breathe because I have air pollution around my house or, you know, I'm around all this this toxic kind of air and these, these impurities. And so we wanted to write this manuscript um, because definitely of the recent incidents of police brutality, um, but we also wanted to kind of relate that to the historical and current policies related to a wide range of environmental hazards that many BIPOC folks have been exposed to, whether that's physical, mental, um, or cultural um, toxicities that kind of create these unbreathable, unlivable communities. And so in order to make this connection, we kind of walk the reader um, through the kind of the evolution of racism within this country, starting first with scientific racism and the pseudoscientific conception of of white biological superiority, along with the kind of this medicalization of blackness in order to, well, to legitimize slavery and then just kind of propagate this anti-black racism. And so in in that first part of the paper, we talk about systems of oppression, whether it's sharecropping or black codes and maybe how black codes um, for many black Americans, specifically black men, were used um, as a tool to have this forced manual labor through this convict leasing. So you're like, okay, you've been emancipated and you're free, but I'm going to convict you for just walking here. I'm going to convict you for, quote, being a vagrant. So now I'm going to still get that free labor from you. But many of these men who were working this convict leasing were exposed to numerous environmental contaminants because they were working on the railroads and they were working in the mines. So we kind of make that connection there. And then we advance our discussion to talk about modern racism, and the and we use the COVID nineteen pandemic as a way to um, exemplify current day connections of racism and how 
And again, you know, we'll highlight examples of residential segregation and many of the social determinant inequities. And then we pivot backwards in this kind of modern racism discussion and show parallels between the 1918 influenza pandemic and then the red summer of 1919 that occurred during that time, along with today's syndemic and the racial reckoning summer of 2020. So we wanted to show like those parallels. Um, And then we close out our review with a talk and a discussion on environmental racism. And we reference a quote from um, Dr. Deborah Robinson, which she says, environmental racism therefore is a new manifestation of historic racial oppression. It is merely an old wine in a new bottle. And I love that because it kind of just talks about a lot of what we had alluded to in the in the beginning of the paper, that racism, a lot that we see is just kind of repackaged. Um, and then we end out, you know, the paper with the whole phrase of I can't breathe and speak of the many forms of environmental racism, how it goes beyond just, you know, pollutants in the air or water or food. Um, and many different environmental and it spans all of these these dimensions, including police brutality. And so we were talking about solutions, and we actually borrowed some of the work from um, Heather McGee in how this false zero-sum narrative needs to be eliminated. And if we try to achieve environmental justice, it will really, you know, help everybody, you know, if we understand and acknowledge that we need to have this anti-racist existence in society, it will have benefits not only for the people who have been disenfranchised, but for everyone. And building off that a little bit, what are, I want to know what you're optimistic about. So you, you touched on some solutions there, some frame, some framing that would be helpful for the research, but where, just in general, broadly, even beyond that, where do you find hope and inspiration these days? I do find I am optimistic, but sometimes I can be very realistic, borderline <laughs> pessimistic. But I am optimistic literally for the future. Um, that may sound kind of hokey, but it's like I think the summer of 2020 with the protests and then also with this pandemic, it's opened the eyes for so many people who either didn't want to see things or just just had their eyes closed. Um and I think for a lot of people, when their eyes were opened, it, it created this fire in their belly. And this is especially true, I think, for a lot of the younger generations. And I think that gives me optimism because I think they can take the baton and help us move forward to this anti-racist society that I had mentioned. And the other thing I think that gives me hope for the future is, and this is kind of selfish because I am a public health, but I think that although public health practice literally through the lens of this pandemic has been kind of dragged through the mud a little bit. I think actually for a lot of people, people now have a higher appreciation for public health and even a better understanding of what it does. Cause for so long people were like, wait, is that people who pick up our trash or what? Just think <laughs> how it's all of these things. Now I think every single person knows what an epidemiologist is in this world now. And so I get stoked by the fact that there's a higher appreci- appreciation and maybe got more kids who might want to go in public health because they're seeing all these different things that you can do. And so that gives me hope as well because I think a lot of people were like, wow, they got this vaccine together quite quickly. And wow, this is going to help me. Like all these connections. And so that kind of gives me hope as well too. 
So before we get to some fun stuff, I have one more question about you mentioned kind of the younger generation. And I wanted to talk about your strategies for mentoring some of these up and coming researchers, specifically how maybe your approach to mentoring is different than how you were mentored. Yeah, so it's a little bit different. So the approach I use for mentoring is I really try to mentor the entire person and not just the student identity. And, and so what I mean is sometimes I'll, they'll come in and we'll just first and we'll talk about their life. We'll talk about, you know, not I won't try to be intrusive, but I open the door to say, like, how's things going? You know, and if they want to just try to divulge some of that, I let them do that and they feel comfortable because because they have lives outside of being a student. Um, and and I think, you know, by kind of getting an understanding of who they are, I can really kind of tap into a better understanding of what they're um, what influences their research or what kind of drives them or what they find passions about. So I really try to mentor the whole person. And it's it's a little different than how I was mentored because my mentors were a little bit more hands-off um, with regard to that type of mentorship. It was very focused on the scholarship and being a student. But I still did have good relationships with them. Like, you know, I was able to see out them outside of the of their career. So for example, we had dinner parties or barbecues. So I was able to see them as a whole person, but in terms of them like mentoring every all the other parts of me outside of the scholarship, it wasn't quite the same way as I, as I do it now. Oh, I really like that. I, I I wish I would have had that. <laughs> and <laughs> and also the idea of of just taking the extra moment to ask how people are doing and acknowledging the fact that there are things outside the classroom because um, I'm sure you're a very busy person. So, you know, good on you for, for going that extra mile and, and making people feel comfortable. Yeah. Yeah. It's, so it's I, good. I'm sorry. No, it just feels good to be able to kind of know who the person is beyond the student. Yeah. It's good to make time for our relationships. And it's so easy to say, throw up your hands and say, I'm busy nowadays because we all, we all are. So um, I'm, I'm really glad to hear that. So Jennifer, I'm trying something new. You are the very first person I'm trying this with because uh, I, I heard this on a different podcast and I thought it was kind of fun. It is just three rapid fire questions and okay. you can just answer with one word or a phrase and we can move on to the next one. So when I am not working, I am most likely daydreaming. <laughs> I'm I an expert, so if I could, I'm surprised to hear that actually. But <laughs> I, I, I am too. So, hello, <laughs> hello, fellow introvert. Um, if I could meet one person, alive or deceased, it would be Maya Angelou. Nothing makes me laugh harder than literally every moment of a girl's trip with my tribal girls. I literally just came back from a girl's trip this past Sunday, Saturday and Sunday. And I think I got stomach cramps the whole time laughing. <laughs> that's, that's excellent. So Jennifer, this has been so much fun. I've really learned a lot and I'm, I'm fascinated by your research and it's really uh, near and dear to my heart. Um, so thank you so much. And my last question is, what is the last book that you read for fun? Well, I would have to say it's weird. I read a lot of stuff that may not seem fun but one of them was this book called black nature and it's kind of like this collection of poetry and different prose about nature and it's nice because it's, it goes across time and current day historically and so it, it's just kind of a nice little way to escape a little bit excellent well jennifer thank you so much for your time today this has been a whole lot of fun it's been fun thank you ryan 
That is all for this week, folks. I hope you enjoyed our conversation, and I hope you're all inspired to go outside to get out in nature. If you enjoy this podcast, visit agentsofchangeinej.org. And while you're there, click the donate button to support us. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram. And please follow us on Spotify, iTunes, or Stitcher, where you can listen to this and all past episodes. The podcast was written, recorded, produced, and edited by me with outreach scheduling and support from the rest of the team. Dr. Ami Zoda, Dr. Yoshida Ornelas Van Horn, Dr. Max Ong, Dr. Lariah Edwards, Summer Ahmad, and Maria Paula Rubiano. Our music is now sung by Pottington Bear. Our team would love to hear from you. Email us at agentsofchangeenej at gmail.com. Thank you so much for joining us. We hope to keep these important conversations on diversity in science and health going. Join me next time when I speak with Dr. Diana Hernandez, a tenured associate professor of sociomedical sciences at Columbia University's Mailman School of Public Health. Have a great week, folks. 